ignition sequence start. Five. Everything. Three. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. I'm George Drake Jr., and this is Everything Sounds. This is London. You will now hear a statement by the Prime Minister. On the morning of September 3rd, 1939, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain addressed the country in a rather somber tone. I am speaking to you from the Cabinet Room at 10 Downing Street. He explained that earlier that morning, the British ambassador in Berlin gave the German government one final letter about removing their troops from Poland. The letter stated that if they didn't hear anything back by 11 a.m., that Britain would ultimately need to declare war on Germany. Well, it was 11 a.m., and I think it's pretty well known what happened next. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received, and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Nine months later, on June 13, 1940, with the war still raging on the continent, Britain put a hold on all church and chapel bell ringing across the entire country. It was called the Control of Noise Defense Order, and only allowed bells to be rung on one occasion, an air raid. For two years, England's bells were silent. It wasn't until the Battle of El Alamein that there was hope. Hope of there being an end to the war for England. Here's some excellent news which has come during the past hour in the form of a communique from GHQ Cairo. It says, the Axis forces in the western desert, after 12 days and nights of ceaseless attacks by our land and air forces, are now in full retreat. Winston Churchill stated, before Alamein, we never had a victory. After Alamein, we never had a defeat. During the war, the Nazis melted down almost 200,000 European bells for use as scrap metal. But England's bells, they were never touched. So Churchill celebrated in the best fashion that England could. He ordered all of the bells in the country to be rung. Tens of thousands of church bells, which hadn't been rung in two years, all ringing at once across an entire country. I have never promised anything about blood, tears, toil, and sweat. Now, however, we have a new experience. We have victory. A remarkable and definite victory. A bright gleam has caught the helmets of our soldiers and warmed and cheered all our hearts. How often does an everyday sound fade into the background? And in the case of the bells in England, how quickly do we realize if those sounds go missing? Sounds define everything around us, even within our jobs. Like a constant elevator chime or a collage of phones ringing. But then there are the sounds of jobs you probably wouldn't think of. And that's where we'll actually return to present-day England, more specifically to East London, to talk to this guy. Uh, my name's Dominic Wilcox. He's an artist, but he doesn't just specialize in one thing. It's, it's pretty all over the place. I've come from a design background. I normally make one-off things objects, drawings, or in this case, recording a record. <laughs> he was commissioned to create a project that was, in a sense, 
a souvenir of East London, which isn't as easy as you may think. If you've ever been to London, you know that most of what the city is known for is primarily on the West End. And if you've ever been to the East End of London, well, you know what I'm talking about. And I um, actually found it quite difficult to, to, to get into that because East London doesn't have any big monuments or big grand buildings. So then you think, you know, making a souvenir of something, um, quite difficult. The one thing East London does have, though, is industry. The East End's culture is firmly rooted in production and manufacture, most of which is centered around the Docklands, or what is now present-day Canary Wharf. When it was first established, the East End was made up of some of the poorest areas of the city, and it also consisted of some of the noisiest and worst-smelling factories, which is why they were all pushed together out east, away from the rest of the city. That industry on the East End is still prominent today. Although the area isn't nearly in the financial state it was originally, and some of the factories have changed or disappeared, the East End still houses some of the city's most skilled and interesting people. You know, there's a lot of creative people in East London. There's a lot of people who make things. And so it was, you know, one thing led to another. And I thought about the sounds that makers make. There's maybe not something that's been focused on so much. So that's what he did. The project is called The Sounds of Making in East London. It's kind of a souvenir to London's East End on a 10-inch vinyl record. You know, we see photographs, we see videos of people making things, whatever, but um, actually, when a maker's at work, they're in their own little world, and they're hearing these sounds every day, and they get they get used to it. They, it, it it's almost like they don't hear it, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so I decided to, to, to capture the sounds of makers at work in East London. East London is exceptionally diverse, so choosing which trades to focus on was difficult. Ultimately, he collected 21 different sounds, ranging from a Vietnamese kitchen. There's a local Vietnamese restaurant, you know, and um, sat down and talked to the waiters, saying, do you mind if I order some food and go into the kitchen and record the sound of you cooking that food and then eat that food? It was um, fried goat and frog's legs, which I've never had. But it it sounded wonderful. (laughs) To an old school songwriter. He was using a typewriter, some glue and some scissors to write his songs. And he would write his song, print it, type it out. Then if he wanted to change a word, he would cut it out with scissors, then stick it onto the sheet. Go mull beside the mulberry, go quench sat on the pench. I meant to say bench, I said pench. On the bench, sat at the... Now, see, I've got there, the bench is all joined up, so I'm going to have to do... Do the bench. I need the bench. And even the sound of the record actually being cut. And that was part of the process, so recording the sound of the people who made this record. That's track one, actually, the sound of a reel-to-reel tape recorder and vinyl record cutting lathe in a vinyl mastering and cutting suite. But what's even more incredible than the sounds he captured are what they're doing that makes those sounds, and in some instances, the people themselves. Advances in technology and changes in economics have decreased the amount of trade professions. However, 
their position in today's society is still incredibly important. Trades are just often overlooked, and most of them aren't even practiced anymore. One of the people Dominic recorded was a man named Steve Jones, who makes press knives. Now, press knives are used to cut shapes out of leather for purses, shoes, and sometimes even entire belts by just pressing them through. So instead of, you know, using a knife and, and doing it one at a time, you make a template. And so the, these press knives are made from long strips of, of, of metal that are sharp with one edge. And then Steve bends these into whatever template the designer wants. And then they use a press to push down on the leather, it cuts out the shapes. Essentially, they're just big leather cookie cutters. And he's the only one remaining left in London, so it's a sort of dying art. So I found Steve in the middle of an industrial estate with no name on the, on the front of the door. And I walk in and it's this amazing place with these, these shaped knives um, on the wall and leather everywhere. And it was a wonderful thing. So I had a long chat with Steve and he was telling us all about it. And I recorded the sound of him bending these long strips into a particular design and then welding little bars between uh, the strips to strengthen it and then using the press to push down, I think it's 20 tonne press. And you know, he was talking about trying to find someone to take over from him, but he thought it was really difficult because he keeps cutting his, cutting his fingers. <laughs> um, you know, Steve, he's in his 60s and um, you know, he wants to retire and these sounds may be gone, you know, quite soon. Dominic also stopped by a place called Algoworks, which has been making eyewear since the early 1930s. During the Second World War, Algoworks made gas mask frames and aviator goggles. And over the course of the next 30 years, they made over a million pairs of frames each year for the NHS, which is the National Health Service. However, this production was stopped by Margaret Thatcher in the 80s when she deregulated the supply of free prescription frames from the NHS. And so they actually stopped doing that and decided to go uh, bespoke and high-end. So they made all of Harry Potter's glasses in the films, and he was saying how the sizes got gradually bigger as the films went along. They also made Eric Clapton and John Lennon's glasses as well. And he took me up to the room where the manufacturing was, and there was hundreds, literally hundreds of different machines in the workshop. But there was only one guy in the workshop going from machine to machine. So all the machines were there from when they made a million you know, they'd kept them, but now they just make bespoke things, and so they only need, uh, you know, a couple of people. So I got um, 20 different sounds from different machines. Just switch on that machine, the starting up of the machine, the rhythm of the machine, the, the belts turning, and, you know, each machine had its own personality. Uh, so I enjoyed that. Personally, I think the most interesting sound that he recorded was at the oldest manufacturer in Britain. The company has been in Whitechapel since 1570, although recently a link has been traced back all the way to 1420. 1420? Are you kidding me? That's insane. It's a job that I didn't even know existed, so maybe that's why it's so fascinating to me, but really it's because it seems like a ridiculously cool job to have. And um, it's called the Whitechapel Bell Foundry. There's so many bells in this episode. They make bells, church bells, small bells, big bells. They actually made the first Liberty Bell. 
Um, they made Big Ben's bell. Fun fact, Big Ben is actually the largest bell in the tower. Big Ben, as we know it, is actually called the Elizabeth Tower. Tell your friends. And they were actually um, retuning a church bell at the time. And I, I said, so how do, how do you retune a church bell, this big lump of metal? Well, basically, they clamp it into a clamp and spin it quite fast. And then a little um, sort of metal file pushes into the inside of the, of the bell and scrapes off metal in different parts of the inside of the bell. And this changes the, the tuning of the bell. But the story was actually that there was a church in England and they had many bells, but all of the bells were made at different times in different places, so they were never actually all tuned together. So their job was to bring all these bells together and retune them so they actually sounded good. So, I, you know, I do feel sorry for the local village who's for the last hundred years have been putting up with out-of-tune bells. <laughs> yeah. As I mentioned before, trade professions are becoming a relic of England's economic and cultural past. They're often overlooked, and many have either disappeared completely or have nearly been forgotten. The way sounds define our work environments has changed drastically since the late 1800s or early 1900s, and it seems now that present-day sounds are almost phased out every 10 years. The sound of a job used to be the sound of progress, industry, pride, and the sound of making something tactile. Dominic's project is less of a souvenir of East London and more of a time capsule for all of London. One remembering the sounds of the way things used to be and the way they still do sound, if only even for the moment. You know, I, I quite like the idea that it is a some sort of historical document of a moment of sounds at the time because of course I wonder what the sounds were like a hundred years ago if you visited makers then I mean a few of them would be very similar <laughs> they'd be exactly the same in fact but um, the area is changing in East London a lot so there would have been different types of makers I think maybe before it was big factories so many people doing the same thing but now there's a there's a huge amount of people doing it for themselves working on their own or with maybe one other person and having a little corner of a room making something. There's a lot of that going on, so I suppose hopefully I've captured a little bit of that. You can find out more about Dominic Wilcox and his Sounds of Making in East London project from our website, everythingsounds.org. And while you're there, you can take a gander through our episode guide and listen to any previous episode, including this one, again. Everything Sounds is an independent production. If you like what you hear, consider becoming an Everything Sounds audiophile. You can pay what you'd like, and you'll get access to our bonus material as it becomes available. Find out more at everythingsounds.org support. And also consider rating or reviewing the show on iTunes. It only takes about a minute or two, but it really does more than you'd think. It helps us move up in their rankings and gets us more exposure. We could really use any help you want to throw our way. Until next time, Thanks for listening to Everything Sounds. I'm George Drake Jr.
This has been Everything Sounds. Find out more about the podcast at everythingsounds.org. Connect with Everything Sounds on Facebook and also on Twitter.